popular, still showing, is the popular show with me, James A. Smith, and... It, me, David Slavik, uh, reporting here from a very balmy Newfoundland. We've been having weather in the high 60s for our American listeners and the 15, 16, 17 range, which is uh, very strange for us in October. I still have tomatoes growing, which is uh, something that typically doesn't happen in Newfoundland even in the summer. But this year we are going through it and it's beautiful. Talking of tomatoes, David, you're you're looking very red. Have you been outside? <laughs> I, I did go I did go for a long hike today. And uh, it, there's something about the lighting in this particular room today that uh, is making me look a little redder than normal. But uh, yeah, I, I, we went for a long hike. Um, and uh, uh, when you're bringing two toddlers along, it takes a little longer than you normally would. But uh, this is the this is what happens when I don't wear a sunblock in October, which I never had to do before. I'm just impressed that you can get your kids to leave the house, David. That's a very healthy family you're cultivating out there yeah. in Newfoundland. Um, I, I think that your lighting's making you look a bit red. My lighting's making me look a bit white. I've got the main light on. Both of us need to um, expand the home studio setup, I think. Uh, and, well, we ought to thank our patrons for creeping us a little bit closer to that. And also to... Welcome with open arms, anyone who would like to support us over at patreon.com forward slash the popular pod. Uh, and while stocks last, uh, and if you send us a DM send, uh, saying that you want one, you're going to get a popular show beer mat. Uh, maybe we should make a little video for uh, the popu popularity media YouTube where I demonstrate how absorbent this beer mat is. <laughs> Any kind of froth coming off. Uh, off your pint while you're listening to the show will be protecting your table with your popular show beer mat so yeah consider helping us out over there we appreciate all of our listeners uh, and the paying ones are just that extra little bit special you still there david absolutely no it's absolutely i you know i i have yet to get mine which i haven't but i haven't dm'd uh james for mine so i encourage you to do that and uh yeah no i need to know, send you of one. course yeah. patreon.com slash the popular pod and check that out uh, we have a lot of uh, exciting news to come in in the upcoming weeks i think you're going to be excited as listeners but today we have an exciting show and i i, I think it's one of those uh you know, and I, I don't know if it's because of Mercury's in retrograde and, uh, you know, a lot, there's a lot of Gemini's involved in the show or, you know, a lot of Gemini's involved in politics. But uh, we've seen uh, a lot of changes go down in the political sphere recently. Of course, there's, you know, and this is a top of mind for our English listeners, is the resignation of Liz Trust. That was very interesting. We have the uh the uh, defection of Tulsi Gabbard, who I think is, is is eyeing up either a vice presidential run or a presidential run on the Republican side. She had sp spoken at CPAC earlier this year, which obviously is not, uh, you know, in keeping with sort of her Bernie roots, you know, as, as many people remember that she was a Bernie supporter. Um, and we have, uh, you know, essentially everything changing so quickly in uh, such a way that I think people are kind of at a loss for where to go and what to listen to and, and, and what to think about. And that's what we're here for today. So we can hope to, you know, bring some order out of that chaos. 
I can no longer remain in today's Democratic Party that's under the complete control of an elitist cabal of warmongers who are driven by cowardly wokeness, who divide us by racializing every issue and stoking anti-white racism, who actively work to undermine our God-given freedoms that are enshrined in our Constitution, who are hostile to people of faith and spirituality, who demonize the police but protect criminals at the expense of law-abiding Americans, who believe in open borders, who weaponize the national security state to go after their political opponents, and above all, who are dragging us ever closer to nuclear war. Now, I believe in a government that's of the people, by the people, and for the people. Unfortunately, today's Democratic Party does not. Instead, it stands for a government that is of, by, and for the powerful elite. Now, I'm calling on my fellow common sense, independent-minded Democrats to join me in leaving the Democratic Party. If you can no longer stomach the direction that the so-called woke Democratic Party ideologues are taking our country, then I invite you to join me. So uh, the the a big part of the kind of editorial premise of this show has been from from the very start that a big ingredient of the defeat of the left populist electoral projects of Jeremy Corbyn and Bernie Sanders either side of the Atlantic was that those new new lefts had failed to sufficiently separate themselves from the neoliberal parties that they were either attempting to cannibalize uh, and rebuild or, or um, yeah, or, or, or partially had done in the case of Corbyn. So it is part of our job to always pay attention when we get these kind of little break moments where the two-party system seems to be in question and where the kind of red team, blue team thing um, starts to starts to break down and you get figures who in some ways have been associated with the left as david said uh tulsi uh, backed backed bernie uh, previously um and when figures like that start spotting the ways in which actually there are kind of kinships on both sides of the divide even if only on specific issues uh and too much of a, a kind of um a, a sort of team player tribalism uh, 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 too often that can get in the way. Um, before we react to this clip, maybe you could just kind of remind our international audience who, who Tulsi Gabbard is in the first place. So Tulsi Gabbard is um, a an American politician, as, as you know, um, who was a congresswoman from Hawaii. Um, her father was a state senator in Hawaii and a longstanding conservative Democrat. Um, the um, The sort of makeup of the the of Hawaii's uh, political sphere is largely democrat so it has sort of the democratic machine politics sort of uh, theme in in that that there's conservative democrats and liberal democrats and progressive democrats uh largely business interests will be you know supported um there's a lot of outside money that goes into candidates who are, you know, more supportive of development, those kinds of things. Uh, but uh, Tulsi came sort of into power. Uh, she was, I think she was first a uh, member of the uh, sort of House of Representatives of, of Hawaii and then, you know, sort of uh, 
springboarded into a career um, in national politics as a congresswoman. Um, she was kind of known as the surfing congresswoman. She had, um, after a few years of working in politics, had gone back and um, through this very special specialized program that Pete Booty Judge and I believe Ron DeSantis and a lot of other sort of uh, political aspirants go through. Um, this like a special program. Uh, sort of military operation where you like you work in sort of intelligence slash leadership and you do a certain tour and she had actually gone to Afghanistan, then gone back into Congress um, and uh, made her sort of bone supporting Bernie Sanders. She had sort of a populist left approach. Um, one of the things that's kind of um, marred her uh, political career has been her connection to Hindu nationalists. Um, uh, that's, that's through sort of her, her family and her sort of family's political orientation. Um, she's, uh, you know, she's, she's Hindu, uh, by political orientation, I mean, by, by religious orientation. And, uh, you know, she's got some sort of like interesting opinions on Muslims and things like that, that, that people are quite surprised of on the left, but they, people have kind of like initially the democratic establishment ignored it because they thought, Oh, this is a, you know, uh, it's a veteran. She's attractive. She can surf, you know, she's pretty compelling. Um, so she was embraced by sort of the democratic establishment. And then, um, she started to break with them on certain issues, especially anti-war issues, uh, which was kind of an interesting given that she was a veteran and then she supported Bernie Sanders. And that's when sort of the establishment came for her and she decided to, to then, um, run for, for, uh, president herself which was kind of a you know fool's errand i don't think that she she thought she was going to win but it was a profile raising opportunity and then she's kind of gone yeah. in sort of and a, she just to jump in and she yeah. also did what bernie didn't which is yeah. to go hard mm -hmm. on some of the neoliberal candidates yeah. she 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 absolutely demolished kamala harris or or, or should have <laughs> she she did electorally yeah uh, and um yeah she she's you almost wish that Bernie could have gone after Joe in that in, in that same fashion. Um, yeah. So al although she she didn't have a hope of being the candidate, she she did some good work in that um, in that campaign. I think from the left point of view. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, honestly, I think that it's it's very possible that uh, we would have a uh, a president. Donald Trump again, if uh, uh, Kamala Harris had been the, the ironically, given her sort of political orientation today, I think that she had prevented uh, in some ways a, a second Trump presidency by ensuring that the the um, sort of selected candidate by the DNC and, and the party mm -hmm. establishment, which was Kamala Harris, did not become president, which is, is, is very interesting. Um, it's also very interesting to see her, um, you know, sort of political turn. And we'll talk about a little bit about that in, in a minute, um, because she has been, you know, largely anti-carceral, and that was the, the the points that she hit on Kamala Harris. But um, she's sort of a law and order candidate candidate now if she was running. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, pos positives first. Uh, I think that anyone on the the broad socialist or anti-war left should. Um, should just embrace with open arms uh, a voice breaking with the uh, with the mainstream Democrats and uh, uh, breaking with their war agenda and also drawing attention as she did on a, a, a really good accompanying appearance on Joe Rogan, drawing attention to the absolute 
corruption that there is at the top of the Democrat Party as far as just profiteering is concerned and, and she she does a brilliant demolition job on um on nancy pelosi on on rogan that uh, maybe i'll drop in a minute um so I, I, the other kind of point is that the, the the left may have their criticisms of tulsi gabbard and there's certainly reasons uh, to kind of critique that uh, resignation speech and there's also reasons to kind of doubt um, the sincerity or the motives in this whole thing. But as almost always, when we get these kind of politically ambiguous figures that seem to be stepping on what you'd expect to be the left's territory, that is only possible by the dereliction of duty by the left proper. If you didn't have uh, the squad chasing after every NGO approved bourgeois identity politics bullshit, if you didn't have them voting for um, more uh, funding for arms for the Ukraine war, if the spokes proper spokespeople of the left were actually doing their job and were actually getting their hands dirty and doing the so transparently necessarily necessary thing of creating that clear water between the left and the uh, the neoliberal vehicles that they've uh, that they've got stuck with, then people like Tulsi Gabbard wouldn't be so compelling, and actually, you know, w wouldn't have this kind of um, rhetorical opportunity to sort of say, "I'm the person who can bridge right and left because I'm more anti-war than the left." Um, it, it, it's really the, the if, if you if you doubt Tulsi Gabbard or if you despise Tulsi Gabbard, it, it is purely by the, uh, the the dereliction of duty by the by the left that she's able to do this in the first place yeah I think that's that's true and um, I think that in the um, you know 2020 Democratic primary we we saw a lot of like ground that was sort of left uh, untouched and there was a lot of opportunity for a candidate like Tulsi to to make it further than she would have. Uh, had, you know, sort of the candidates that weren't competing just for, for you know, the, the establishment vote. Um, we've seen in, in previous years, uh, like I want to say go back to 2000, like 2004, we saw um, uh, a number of candidates who were like, you know, largely semi anti-establishment but had some credentials uh run and you know sort of run against the center um but in in 2020 we we, we saw a lot of people who you know thought okay we just need to get trump out um and they were competing against you know a very powerful democratic establishment they saw what happened to bernie when he stepped out of line um and you know largely that was decided in you know back rooms or you know like it could have definitely gone his way had the certain hands been off the levers at different points in time um and we you know we saw what happened in iowa and uh so I could understand why, you know, candidates like Pete Buttigieg, who are probably, you know, neoliberal at their core, uh, would even tack even more neoliberal in that election because there people were competing for normalcy. That was the the idea. Um, Bernie was the only candidate, I think, besides Tulsi, who were was really competing for that, that sort of edge case of something new. Um, the interesting thing about Tulsi in general is that I, I thought probably three years ago that she was going to run as a Republican. Mm -hmm. uh, I just had a sense that, you know, she saw where her lane was. She saw that, um, you know, for a number of reasons, whether it's uh, 
the fact that she's from Hawaii, you know, or, you know, the fact that she's, she's a little outspoken or she's a little bit different. She's not in with a click that, um, it was going to be impossible for her to run as a Democrat. And she seemed to me like much like Pete Booty judge in, in, in her, his own way. Um, the type of person who had been angling to be president for a long time, you know, and there's just these people you meet. I mean, I've met, you know, in Washington, D.C., I would meet them all the time. And you'd say, oh, this person wants to be president someday. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's it's one of those things that it's all possible. It's, you know, yeah. it is possible. But um, it's just a matter of, like, getting in the right place at the right time. Um, I see a lot of people, and, and I think even in the commentary space, who, who see the right as, a, as, as more fertile ground. Because, you know, the left is, is kind of a it's, a, it's more bitter soil at this point because people are a lot of, very disappointed with the, the sort of Bernie movement, the Corbyn movement and all the opportunities that we've kind of been squandered in recent years. Yeah, well, the, 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 the fact that in America, the um, the left, you know, basically had a, a one day mourning period after Bernie yeah. dropped out and then immediately was all in on you got to vote for Joe Biden, you've got to get the vote out for Joe Biden, stop fascism. They were immediately uh, completely submerged in that. So what that leaves is a, um, a, a geriatric party where the, the, the real kind of um, fag ends of the, <laughs> in the British sense, of, the, um, uh, uh, of, of this kind of ancient generation that, that's... Uh, has uh, uh, has completely lost any kind of sense of mental clarity, and below that, this completely lost left that uh, has has no kind of proper way of critiquing or reacting to um, to, to the to the wider party or criticizing it. It's completely supine in relationship to this transparently idiotic machine. So yeah, it's not surprising that the right seems more more fertile because more unpredictable in in many respects it is still the same old republican party still the same old neocon party and yet there's this way in which certain candidates in certain jurisdictions have to at least rhetorically tack left and rhetorically tack anti-war and i mean the choice is vote blue to uh, escalate the probability of nuclear war with Russia or vote red and do that a little bit further down the line with China. Uh, There isn't an actual anti-war choice as far as uh, these two parties are concerned. But what is interesting is that um, the right has to, under certain circumstances, pretend. And the the left's normal reaction is, ah, they're just pretending, ah, they're just hypocrites. But this is politically useless. You should be happy that they have to pretend. And the strategy always should be to kind of force people to actually act on those words uh, or or to kind of push them far enough until they admit, oh, I was only anti-war until it came to China. Oh, I was only economic populist until it came to Medicare for all. Um, this this kind of um, uh, focus on hypocrisy when somebody's making the argument that you should be making all the more forcefully. Uh, let, let's see how Tulsi was on on Rogan because I thought this was pretty interesting. I mean, it would be wonderful if we could get money entirely out of politics. If the only way that a politician could make money while they're in office is just their salary. Yeah. 
if we said it that way. Yeah. Like, I'm sure you're aware of the Nancy Pelosi stuff. Oh, like, absolutely. Oh, it's wild. It is. And, and, and look, this is, I think this is one of the good things about social media is, of course, the, the mainstream corporate media is hardly covering it right. at all. But because of social media, things like that are spreading like wildfire, like, hey, Paul Pelosi is doing these trades within this period of time of Nancy Pelosi voting on this bill or bringing a bill to the floor. Because we've got to remember, Nancy Pelosi as Speaker of the House, nothing happens without her knowing about it or giving her stamp of approval. So regardless of whether it's happening in the Judiciary Committee or the Commerce Committee or the Armed Services Committee, if there's a bill coming to the floor and there's major legislation that's being passed or is being squashed, that is happening with her say-so. And so, so just in this, these last few days, you know, they once people started making noise saying, hey, you as a member of Congress or your spouse or your adult child should not be allowed to conduct insider trading right. on issues that Congress is dealing with, which, which really covers every issue under the spectrum. They can't pretend anymore that they haven't been doing it. And yet, even as Nancy Pelosi is like, okay, okay, fine, we'll draft legislation. But Congress is about to take a break as they head into the general elections. And once again, she's refusing to bring the bill to the floor for a vote, saying, oh, well, you know, we're not going to bring it to the floor if it doesn't have support. Put people on the freaking spot. Make them cast that vote. That is See, I, I, I love that. I love that presentation from her. And really, when I'm listening to that, I'm listening to what the legacy of Bernieism and Corbynism should be escalating the attacks on uh, the way in which there is a cross-party blob, there is a cross-party consensus, um, uh, uh, and also that kind of, that populism of throwing in, like, that gesture towards social media. Like, one good thing about social media is you people, the listeners, get it. <laughs> the, the, the mainstream media isn't reporting it. So kind of upping the kind of crank vibes i think that's a necessary thing for <laughs> continuation of these projects after um after uh, 2019 and 2020 um i think she's great on rogan we'll put a pin in the um in the trans stuff we'll be talking to juliet jakes in a, in a couple of weeks incidentally we'll pick, pick up that a little yeah. later down the line that's but a that's a more complicated issue it is right it is yeah. we, we don't <laughs> want to get stuck on that right now but as far as uh, her critiques of of, of the party and, and Nancy Pelosi and, and uh, the Ukraine-American um, uh, uh, response, um, I, I think it's absolutely tip-top. Compare that with the actual resignation speech, and actually she's talking quite a different language. I mean, when wh what did you make of stuff like uh, her saying that uh, the, Democrat, uh, the Democrats are the party of anti-white racism, for example, and... Uh, what you started us off on a, a minute ago, the, the law and order stuff about uh, the, the party not backing our police. Yeah, I think I think one of the I, I mean, I, it's that's an interesting one. I think that that's been in that. Um, I don't think it's true. I, I do think that there is an aspect to the Democratic Party where in the messaging at times they're very dismissive of white working class people, particularly in areas where they do not get votes right mm -hmm. and there's been some discussion and this is like you know both out in the open and behind closed doors about how do you approach getting people who uh 
largely uh, would be economically interested in, in your vote in voting for you um, to vote for you if they don't 100 percent agree with you on every social issue or, um, you know, don't have the aesthetics of the party and things like that. I think one of the problems with it, I think this is not a racial issue. This is not a this is not like, um, you know, a great replacement issue. This is more of a the aesthetics and the mindset of many of the people who make decisions in democratic messaging and those are different than the politicians they're different than the staffers and and this, these are people who work you know largely in think tanks and and and, and um you know ngos and things like that in, in the party um you know they're young hip sort of wokesters who you know maybe or maybe do not have a lot of friends or family who have different opinions of them um they largely went to schools where they went to you know met people who agree with them wholeheartedly or, or, or at least didn't speak up if they didn't. Um, I think there's, you know, largely it's almost like a, it's almost like a Tory problem with the Democrats right now. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, in that they, they, they've all gone, you know, like largely the people who, who make the decisions have gone to specific schools. They have a certain upbringing. Uh, they may be, you know, uh, they may not have grown up in a, a rich area or anything like that, but once they got out of their house, that you know they were largely in a situation where they had a certain uh, sort of milieu and I, I i think that that is a problem i don't know if tulsi gabbard is not in that milieu either like i mean she grew up her father was a politician uh she's largely been um in politics her adult life um you know uh she's you know she was want for nothing, you know, in that way. Yeah. Um, I think being in the military does, you know, give you access to a lot of different types of people. So you do know how to talk to people. Um, but, you know, those types of things are, are interesting because, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like a Boris Johnson issue. Like Boris Johnson's like no more well-equipped to, you know, talk to the working man than anyone, but he sounds like he is, you know, I mean, <laughs> Yeah, I, for, for me, when she starts talking about anti-white racism, um, I mean, as listeners to the show will, will know very well, we, we've been very critical of the um, escalation of a kind of radicalized um, liberalism uh, on on race, uh, and have, have tended to take the the Adolf Reed, Toure Reed um, analysis that uh, quite a lot of what passes for so-called anti-racism today is actually a kind of um, class politics by another name uh, and is is a kind of uh, a, a bad trick really by which the uh, the managerial class uh, and the upper middle class has managed to kind of adopt a new language that looks like self-criticism i have to uh, uh, admit to my white fragility etc but actually is a way of making a new kind of um uh, uh, elite language and a new kind of distinction. I'm I'm secure and economically secure enough to criticize my own race uh, uh, and and welcome my black colleagues, unlike these racist uh, proles beneath me. So I, I absolutely think that uh, I want to see um, populist politicians taking head on uh, and and distinguishing themselves from this pretty malign in my view uh legacy and elite capture of uh, of the whole black lives matter um movement and moment but um I, this is a really common problem right whenever you sort of try to kind of look for um 
progress on the economy by bridging interests across left and right, you end up hitting the wall of the basic fact that the right is as cringe as the left. Uh, if you've come from the left, if you've been disillusioned with uh, the way that a lot of our projects have shaken out and become disillusioned at the way many of your comrades end up with the most cringe, bullshit, NGO, bourgeois identity politics. And then you start kind of reaching out, okay, well, maybe we can talk to economic populists on the right, maybe we can talk to um, uh, foreign policy nationalists who are critical of intervention, etc. Of course, we have to do that. And that's what the show is, 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 uh, is, is dedicated to quite a lot of the time. But we can't overlook the fact that their rhetoric is as stupid and bullshit and sometimes even worse than ours is. I mean, yeah. there isn't anti-white racism. There is the cynical um, deployment of identity politics. There is even the possibility that you don't have to cynically deploy identity politics because it's already a bourgeois uh, um, falsification in itself. All of that's possible. But that doesn't mean, therefore, that there is anti-white racism. Actually, that is just another kind of mirror, it's a mirror image of the kind of victimhood that we find so expertly deployed on the left, that the right does it just as much as everyone. Frankly, David, I'm, I'm just sick of this kind of cuck politics, where it's a, a kind of competition to show who's got the most legitimate yeah. victim complex. I want some strength, David. Yeah, you know, it was funny to me, because I, I actually, I, I see what she's doing. And, you know, like, that'll get you... Uh, three or four percent in a cpac straw poll next yeah. year but it's not because gonna they're dumb. They're not, gonna be, well. not gonna make you president right like the next step mm. is okay so you're like cool like that's great if you if you just want to like go on the conservative like like griff circuit for 20 years and be like you know this this pretty lady could be president someday if you, you just believed enough like that's not going to bring people together like she her starting point was i want to be above this and then she gets into like you know this is the party of anti-white racism and really what you could say there's lots of ways i and this is not my words but this is what she she could say is like i believe that you know things have gone to a certain point where uh you know this could be perceived by people who want who would agree with the democrats as anti-white you know the, you know there's lots of like very nuanced and interesting compelling ways that you could do that. I, I mean, if I think about um, the sort of Obama 2012 era, when he talked about the division that had, you know, kind of come up uh, out of the sort of Tea Party movement after he had been elected and, and he really galvanized his support by, you know, kind of saying, Hey, I get where you're coming from. This is, you know, this can seem scary, et cetera, et cetera. And I think she failed on that, that point. And I, and, and that's kind of where I've seen her as a politician, be short-sighted because i think she's a little too bitter like there's something like about the way she approaches things that uh she can't transcend her own bs and like even if she's smart even if she's capable that just but there's lots of politicians like that and there's that's that's you know um you know trump is like petty as they come but he kind of you know transcended the moment in a weird way and, and and you know biden's got his own stuff going on but in some ways he you know he and maybe because he's not as with it as he used to be, he kind of stepped out of himself and became president. There's something about becoming president that requires like you to dissociate. And I, I don't see her doing that. Um, one last thing on, on her. 
um, I wonder if you saw uh, this going around. I, I mean, the, the military thing, I, I, I think, is actually, that's another thing that puts the left off. Um, but I, I think that should be more interesting to us than it is. I, one of the most impressive things about Steve Bannon's um, podcast, uh, if he's going to be allowed to do that from from prison, I don't know, but um, is, is the way that, um, okay, the whole kind of presentation, however um, much you think it's uh, using it's a, a cynical ploy, the presentation is, is, is populist. He addresses his audiences as activists. Um, and then he's always got like ex-military people on um, and addresses them respectfully uh, by their title, says, thank you for your service and so on. There's this kind of very interesting way in which um, he's able to present his politics as simultaneously a kind of outsider uprising, but also as having the sympathy of the military. Um, Brace over on uh, Truanon said that uh, he'll only get interested in, in the left again when it has a plan for taking over the military, um, <laughs> because that's the only thing that's yeah. ever worked. Um, so on the one hand, I, I, I'm kind of intrigued by that. But did you see um, uh, uh, Comrade Gumby for Christ uh, was putting out the fact that Tulsi is currently assigned to the 351st Civil <laughs> Affairs Command, uh, an Army Reserve PSYOP unit, um, later clarified as a Colonial Affairs unit, which has a pretty intriguing history that would be worth kind of diving into um, as a, a, as as something that has been involved in psychological <laughs> warfare. So I guess the accusation would be that this latest kind of bout of the Republicans or the real anti-war party or whatever might have, you know, a bit more of something deep in it. What do you reckon, David? So I I don't think so. But mm. I, I think that's I think it's always good to watch. Mm -hmm. Um I think uh, it's that the it, well. I'll tell you what's interesting about that is that there's so many political uh, people who have been in that particular division or a related division, uh, which is I think is interesting. I think oftentimes, um, particularly like in the reserves, those people are in that because they have certain skills, right? And that you know, if they're called upon, they can be called into a war situation, et cetera, et cetera. If they're in the reserves. Um, typically they just put college graduates in those types of positions so it's it's not as like um it's it, it absolutely could be some weird psyop but i i honestly think it's just largely kind of what they do with with you know they're like okay we have somebody who can really talk and we may need them someday and they're, they're kind of there um you know I, I i look back to my own grandfather who was in the reserves and he was a, a sort of a dead-eye shooter and he he didn't have to do much but he he would he was on the army touring team for sharpshooters so he'd like go to different army bases and he'd show off his like shooting potential he'd like throw up a quarter or shoot you know shoot through it that kind of Annie Oakley stuff so I mean having a little more insight into like that military aspect and I know that Gumby for Christ does as well I mean I can I just I can't say why I know that but I do know that um I, I don't think in this instance this is, this is some sort of psyop. I think it's it's her own self-aggrandizement. <laughs> <laughs> and you know well, I'm like I'm, I'm I'm as conspiratorial as they get, but you know I don't think so. <laughs> it's it's always worth just putting it out there, just asking innocent questions. <laughs> hey, as as far as that like that little process of um, 
you you know you think you've got this kind of moment flaring up where this sort of distant left distant right populist left populist right kind of moment occurs and then you hit the wall of the basic fact that the right is as cringe if not more cringe than the left i really think that played out amazingly with the whole kind of kanye west uh, or yay uh, story over the last couple of weeks um maybe just re worth reminding ourselves of uh, the first appearance on tucker carlson um how when did you start to feel this way when did you start to realize this I, I really felt like I think I started to really feel this need to express myself on another level when Trump was running for office and I liked him yes. and every single person in Hollywood from my ex-wife to my mother-in-law to my manager at that time to you know my my so-called friends slash handlers around me told me like if I said that I like Trump that my career would be over that my life would be over uh, they said stuff like people get killed for wearing a hat like that. They threatened my life. They put my life. They basically said that I would be killed uh, for uh, wearing the hat. I had a, a, someone call me last night and said anybody wearing a White Lives Matter shirt is going to be greenlit, and that means that they're going to beat them up if they wear it. And I'm like, you know, okay, green light me then. <laughs> Kanye, um, what do you make of this, David? So, what, <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry, I'm laughing. I, I've always found Kanye West to be like kind of hilarious. Like, I just as a just as a human being, um, I thought, you know, he's like fine. Like, I've always, you know, like we, Michael Brooks and I used to always have this discussion about Kanye. We were always like, is he good or not? And we, it was really like up in the air between the two of us. Like, you know. And um, I remember uh, Obama had said, you know, like, oh, he's a jackass, you know, like it was a famous clip from from Obama. And uh, a perfectly nice person. She's getting her award. What's he doing? Why would he there? do that? He's a jackass. <laughs> and <laughs> this is like a totally different era. It's very interesting to see those old Obama clips because he's just he's like so much more upright than the last two presidents you know his his posture is incredible he's crosses his legs you're like oh this guy's a real class act but uh you know i mean in that time since then kanye has become bigger and bigger you know he of course is you know uh married kim kardashian and that that's they become like sort of a the you know uh humunculus of 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 sort of star power um i've always said he was like off you know, he, you know, his parents were, I believe his parents were both English professors. And, and I say that, you know, that's the troubling, that's a troubling upbringing. And if I, if I have to say yeah, so, you, you only really want one. <laughs> that's right. And, uh, you know, so his like sort of whole shtick was kind of funny because he had this like Chicago street kid thing. And I was like, well, you know, your parents were English professors, of course, uh, you know, and that's fine. I don't think that there's any sort of like authentic rapper in any real terms. If you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. Um, I've always found his sneakers to be kind of ugly, uh, you know, <laughs> not very fit for purpose. But uh, he's an intriguing guy because he's really made a lot of hay for himself, you know, kind of being this interesting weirdo. Um, 
he's got this sort of like last he's Trumpian and and not just the way that he like is willing to project himself out there, but he has the the last person who told him something syndrome. Oh god. And, and yeah, recently yeah. he's been hanging really with Candace Owens and mm -hmm. uh, you can tell that because he'll just repeat what she said last week. And that's quite interesting. Um, uh, he's recently bought the, 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 the site parlor, which is like the third most popular right wing <laughs> website. And it's yeah. kind of a, kind of a, a no hitter um, who is also owned partially by Candace Owens. I know. Husband. Yeah. This is, so this is exactly like where I was going as well. So um, when this whole thing started, um, it, there's something of the same thrill as um, Tulsi turning on Nancy Pelosi, etc. on, on Rogan, this sense that the, um, the good team and the bad team thing is being dissolved. We're getting an insider actually pointing the finger uh, and saying, no, look, it's all one thing. This is bullshit. Um, and um, however funny it might be that um, Kenya's answer to where, where did uh, your problems come from? My ex-wife and my mother-in-law. The kind of conventional uh, uh, targets that even a superstar like Kanye ends up uh, complaining about. But um, th there was that. And then there was also that first appearance in the White Lives Matter shirt, which caused all the stir. And I, I, I actually found that kind of interesting in the first instance for several reasons. First, it was like even this racist reactionary catchphrase can become aestheticized into a work of fashion. And that sort of showed how or, or, or deconstructed the way in which the Black Lives Matter slogan already did that. That was number one. Number two was that, you know, the answer to or the defense of the phrase Black Lives Matter or what people found thrilling and, and, and great about the phrase Black Lives Matter was that kind of understatement to the point of bathos. Of course, Black Lives Matter. And yet we have to say it. Um, and the, the kind of reaction to people saying all lives matter was no, 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 you don't understand. Black Lives Matter means all lives matter because it means only when Black Lives Matter do all lives matter. But the problem is that you could apply that logic to White Lives Matter just as well. If the point is you, the universal comes from the particular, as I, I think Zizek said um, when, uh, about the phrase Black Lives Matter, then the exact same claim could be made from, from White Lives Matter. So in some ways, um, Kanye wearing that shirt because it's him, this kind of aesthetic genius, arguably, and, and, and kind of significant artist is doing it. It just sort of defamiliarizes the phrase and, and, and the image. Um, and uh, on the one hand, I don't know, you could see it as containing a, a, a more interesting criticism of Black Lives Matter than, than you sort of see on the face of it from the other point of view you could say that it completely defangs this racist phrase white lives matter and and takes it out of the hands of uh, of of full-on racists so so far so good but then as soon as it becomes clear that he's just hanging out with 
uh, uh, with Candace Owens. And as soon as it's clear that um, this like most cringe form of um, right wing, I'm the black person who's right wing. I, I've uh, I've set myself up to make all this money on the conservative circuit. As soon as you realize that's who it's coming from, it just kind of dissolves what was initially kind of transgressive and interesting about Kanye's um, initial gesture. So for me, it's the tragedy of um, whatever kind of momentary kind of breaking open of opportunity or, or, or defamiliarization might, that might occur in these moments of kind of crossing across the political spectrum, they very quickly collapse into, as I say, the right being just as cringe as the left. Yeah, it's interesting because I think Candace Owens actually is the representative of that thing you're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, she was kind of a fake Bernie supporter who I, I think I in, intentionally... Uh, planned on making that crossover she's like sort of a cassandra fairbanks type character where where it seemed to be like there was like they saw that where things were going and they're like i'm gonna go for trump after this and you know i'll get some celebrity status by sort of making that that switch and so it made me laugh because you know all this sort of like uh uh you know the interesting subversive aspects of of wearing that as a black man you know yeah is undermined because you're standing with someone who is essentially just a grifter, you know, in that particular yeah. way. So it's, um, you know, she could talk all about her personal journey and everything like that, but that's fine. I don't buy it. I just don't buy it. <laughs> I don't buy it. Um, I, I think she's, she's an impressive uh, celebrity in her own right. You know, like I think she does what she does, but um, what I think is that he was a, she's at least persuasive in talking to Kanye. And I thought that was interesting because I thought had he been there by himself or with, you know, uh, one of his fellow designers or someone on his team, I think it would have got much more interesting play. But what I thought was interesting yeah. is that there was a sort of a, the freedom of association aspect was was removed from the situation. Like I might not like Candace Owens, I might not like the message, I might not like the T-shirt, but the fact was is that very quickly people turned on him. It was incredible because he had worn a, a, a Confederate flag a jean jacket in the past and all these sort of things, and he said he likes it because it it was like represented rebellion. You know, I could see you know that sort of aspect to what he's doing. But it, it was very funny to see how quickly that changed for him. But how you react to that situation, it's a, what do they say in, in sort of therapy circles? Uh, life is what you react. It's not what happens to you, it's how you react to it. You know, and I think that next step is where Kanye went wrong. I think this can help us creep closer to Britain uh, and this, I don't know, I, 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 th I, think it, I think Britain is worth watching from from abroad as a kind of yet again a sort of intriguing petri dish and an intriguing kind of combination of forces which exist uh, all over the west at the moment but uh, britain seems to be specializing in bringing them to crisis earlier than um everyone else but um i mean j just to kind of like bridge from what we've been talking about really um it, it has been interesting to watch the way in which this from the point of view of good normal centrists liberals etc this degeneration of the conservative party from 
being um you know the, the the heir to blair in the in the coalition government of david cameron after 2010 uh, all the way down to liz truss's uh historically brief premiership that that alleged kind of degeneration of the party where it's become more allegedly authoritarian more allegedly right-wing more populist <laughs> etc has coincided with more and more um, British ethnic minorities in top jobs. So there's a kind of quite interesting sort of like crossing of the graph, as it were, that as the party becomes allegedly more atrociously reactionary and right-wing, it, the, it, it, it comes to resemble more like a kind of liberal's dream of what government is meant to look like in the 21st century, um, in, in contrast to the ever anemic and never more so than under uh, Keir Starmer, uh, a white front bench of the Labour Party. Um, here's um, Suella uh, Braverman, who was appointed uh, Home Secretary by Liz Truss. It's not racist for anyone, ethnic minority or otherwise, to want to control our borders. It's not bigoted to say that we have too many asylum seekers who are abusing the system. It's not xenophobic to say that mass and rapid migration places pressure on housing, public services and community relations. I reject the left's argument that it is hypocritical for someone from an ethnic minority to tell these truths. I would love to be having a front page of the Telegraph yeah. with a, fly, a plane taking off to Rwanda. That's my dream. That's my dream. It's when will that session. happen? Uh, well, the, the, the invocation of Martin Luther King. I have a dream, and the dream is uh, Britain being allowed to deport um, uh, immigrants to Rwanda. Um, th this is, a, 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 to me, a great example of exactly the same pattern. I think, I don't know, speaking, I don't know, attempting to speak non, in a non-partisan fashion for a moment. I think it was a, would actually be a very healthy thing for everybody if the current pattern of ethnic minority support for the right was to continue. I think that actually it, it, it's, it does seem to me to be having a good influence on the right. Uh, as we've covered before, it seems that increasingly a lot of people on the right get more pleasure out of, a lot of white people on the right, get more pleasure out of saying that actually the left are the real racists than they do out of being racist themselves. I don't want to sound you know, too over-optimistic there, but I think like the actual shallowness of quite a lot of right-wing racism has been sort of revealed in the excitement that a lot of people on the right increasingly have um, at their own kind of increasingly uh, diverse um, leadership in Britain and um, support base in in America. Um, so I, I, I think that there are all kinds of interesting things there. And I think it is an interesting puzzle that, as I say, these allegedly populist uh, 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 and f allegedly far-right administrations of Boris Johnson and Liz Truss are so ethnically diverse compared to um, their predecessors. All the same, we get the same thing that we saw uh, with Tulsi Gabbard and the same thing that we saw with Kanye, where 
like the the form it takes at the moment and when you actually listen to these people speaking is the most cringe fucking bullshit version of like tired daily mail right-wing rhetoric from 20 years ago it's it that that whole thing it's not racist to be concerned about immigration look actually people are deeply unconcerned about immigration in britain since brexit since brexit people have really kind of dropped immigration as as a, as a kind of issue of concern which frankly suggests that um when people on the right said that, uh, that they didn't object to foreigners they objected to having foreigners imposed upon them by the eu that actually a lot of them were telling the truth um so to have braveman then kind of reigniting these really tired reactionary points it's um you know do do better writers do better the less populists are counting on you to actually come up with something original right now yeah it's it that's interesting i mean there was a there was a discussion today i was listening to the to um uh on uh, the Economist's uh, uh, podcast, and they were talking about sort of the conflict between Braverman and sort of the the trust wing of the party, mm-hmm. and um, you know, just they knew that they in in order to ratchet up the the uh, economy in the short term, that they needed to have more immigration in the short term. You know, just to bring in new taxpayers, to to you know, people spending all sorts of things, right? And um, you know, like the English are not reproducing themselves. Like that's just true. Like there's yeah. the, they have no one's a, waiting tables. Yeah. No one's waiting tables. It's just not happening. Like, not. like, you know, all, like all over the West, there's just not enough people, right. To, 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 to support the pension system, to support the NHS, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, you know, when you have a situation where, you know, you can't get Slovakians in anymore because the, you know, the, the cost of living's lower there and the standard of living's higher, you know, you have to start thinking like a little more creatively. So it was very interesting to see, you know, and I think this is, I think in many instances, especially for some of these, um, uh, let's say, persons of color in the conservative movement, you're seeing them go harder on immigration or yeah. harder on certain certain aspects of certain things, because I think that they're going to say, like, I'm not like other you know, immigrants, or I'm not like other, you know, uh, second generation people, or you know, whatever. Because I know that Swallow Braverman was, you know, born in the UK. Uh, Rishi Sunak was born in the UK. Uh, unlike the former prime minister who was born in Manhattan, mm-hmm. in the upper, <laughs> upper West Side, uh, Boris Johnson. But it's it's very interesting to see, you know, sort of that sort of uh, framing. I mean, Ted Cruz is is much like that in the United States. You'll see that with Marco Rubio. He's like very hard on immigration, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and uh, it's interesting that they, that because of the individual interests of all these politicians, they can't keep a narrative. And and I think yeah. under Boris, they did have some narrative. It wasn't necessarily always coherent, but there was some narrative. And uh, it's just it's very funny to me that uh, you know uh, the anti-lockdown uh, party is undone by lockdowns that the, you know, that the, uh, the pro business party is going to stop business. I mean, it just, it's like, uh, it's incredible. And then I saw Keir Starmer give his reaction speech this uh, yesterday. And I, every time he talks, I can't believe that's what his voice sounds like. The damage has been done to our economy and, um, an incoming government is going to have to pick up a, a real mess of our economy of the Tories making. 
Now, at the moment, we don't know the full extent of the damage because we haven't had an OBR report. We but you need have that. Heard the former Bank we, of England governor say that, that to be realistic report. and Look, to be truthful with the public. That's what he was saying. To be truthful with the public, you've got to be saying that taxes will have to go up if we want to enjoy the kinds of standards that we get right now. Laura, we need that OBR report so we know the extent of the damage. Uh, the we need that. Whoever comes watchers. in as Prime Minister, we need that OBR report because we all need to see the extent of the damage. What I've said from a Labour Party point of view is I know there are going to be tough choices. I said mm -hmm. that actually in Liverpool three weeks ago. Yeah, he does talk like that, doesn't he? I, in, in a sort of state of depression in the, in the kind of aftermath of the... 2019 election and actually for most of 2020 I, I, I just couldn't listen to broadcast news because I couldn't bear either the Prime Minister or the leader of the opposition's voices. I couldn't bear to hear <laughs> Boris Johnson's voice and I couldn't bear to hear Kiss Thomas' voice. I mean he makes me miss Boris. I mean I mean like that's I mean that not I mean let's put it this way. If Labour takes control with Keir Starmer at the head, arguably the lot of most Britons and people in the UK would be better. We could all agree on that in large part. I, but I, what I don't understand is that in a time where there's a lot of uncertainty, we have the leader of the opposition speaking like he's uh, Ben Shapiro at a debate club when he should be the calmer, you know, more reassuring, stable voice I do not. He looks like that guy. He totally looks like that you've, guy. To me. You've absolutely cracked it, and I'm never going to be able to unsee it. So that 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 voice that sounds like it's being played on too high a speed, um, <laughs> and that like bizarre constipation of a voice, yeah, <laughs> as well. That is absolutely Ben Shapiro like. Well, I mean, you uh, you know, people, uh, you know. Uh, it, but Tony Blair's rhetorical skills have, have degraded over the years. Let's be honest; like he's not he's not the man he was. But when Tony Blair was on the floor and he was talking, and Gordon Brown was right there, those guys could rock it. They made they made, they made you feel pretty like pretty cool. And it just I'm not seeing that in labor right now, and yeah. it worries me because I think largely. The UK is where the Rolling Stones came from. It's where the Beatles came from. It's where, you know, it, there is something rock and roll about the UK that is just not being represented by Labour right now. And I worry about it. Well, you know, you, we had we had our chance to get rock and roll back and uh, <laughs> they they kicked him out for partying too much. Bojo <laughs> was, uh, was the, the return of the Rolling Stones spirit. Um, I'm sort of kidding. Well, I, mean, I think actually there was something quite important in that little uh, set piece between Keir Starmer and Laura Kunzberg, uh, who is, she's the former um, BBC chief political editor uh, and is the most extraordinary case study in, um, in, in ideology at, at work. Um, do you notice what happens there? Keir Starmer says that because of um, Liz Truss, destroying the economy in her brief time in government, Labour is going to have to make tough choices. And then as if she's disagreeing with him or catching him out, Laura Kunzberg says, oh, but uh, Keir Starmer, don't you agree that you're going to have to be honest with the public? They like act like they're having an argument and making different points when actually, you know, we put on our uh, ideology glasses 
And what we see is Keir Starmer saying, we have to do austerity. We have to do austerity. We have an excuse to do austerity now. And then Laura Kunzberg replies, but wouldn't you agree that you need to do austerity? Basically, that, that's, that is what we've got to look forward to. That stupid Ben Shapiro voice um, uh, 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 pretending to argue with newscasters while they both essentially agree on um, an eco economic policy that they clearly wanted to pursue in the first place, that Boris Johnson was arguably deposed because he had certain like uh, economic populist leanings he needed and wanted, probably personally and narcissistically, to keep those northern working class votes by putting some money into those areas. Uh, Boris is gone now, and uh, tonight, as we're recording, we learn that he won't be um, running to replace Liz Truss, replacing himself uh, her tomorrow. Um, and all we're left with is um, is what was the plan all along, reverting to, to a, a, a technocratic austerity model. And now there's the perfect excuse in this, this claim, at least, that Liz Truss was uniquely and personally uh, incompetent and she has destroyed the economy tying the hands of whatever future government it is whether conservative or labor yeah it the, the commentary around this has been fascinating because at first they talked about what she was doing wrong and mm -hmm. that, that was interesting and that was you know that made sense they talked about the mini budget they talked about the, the you know the fracking vote and the inability to you know sort of whip the party around a, a central issue which you know, was very complicated because fracking is sort of one of the few issues that the, the Tory party doesn't agree upon totally. You know, they have the sort of, you know, the, you know, the midland conservationist types. Who, yeah, you know, there's like the green want, Tory yeah, kind of, exactly. uh, thing, yeah. The, yeah, and then the and then you have um, you know sort of the the growth Tory uh, sort of conflict, and you know that was a, that was a mistake, obviously, but now they, they're just talking about like it's very interesting that like you know uh, they've like tot totemized her like you know like they're burning her like the green man, and um, they're there's going to be people who are going to put in you know basically a half measure between her most extreme measures and and the one that you know. Uh, would be you know suitable um and it's going to be bad for britain and, it, and it's it's fascinating that uh that's not going to be analyzed you know it's just it's this yeah. discussion about how how we'll do austerity uh, either in this way and they say now uh labor how would you do austerity better so when we were covering georgia maloney i suggest that listeners go back a couple of episodes uh, a few episodes and listen to that because we claimed that increasingly um, you get these figures who seem to be these kind of populist interruptions, seem to be, they don't call them populist anymore because there isn't a, a left to group in with, uh, with, the, with the term populism, they call them fascist, um, when at the same time, uh, the, the EU, the centrist blob, whatever you want to call it, has um, learned how to use those figures that they, they were disruptive in 2016 they were disruptive uh, and they didn't know what to do with them for at least five or six years but now uh, a figure like maloney is more um uh, 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 responsive and and and, uh, and supine to uh, uh, supranational 
body. She's more committed to the EU projects than your standard Macron-style centrist is. Uh, they've completely learned how to um, neutralize these kind of figures. And Liz Truss is another intriguing example of precisely that. Uh, it, it, it was, I remember sort of sensible Tories who were getting very anxious and upset about their increasingly kind of crank um, Russell Brand's fan base saying uh, that the the the, the, the uh, World Economic Forum was going to choose Boris's successor. I, I, I saw uh, people from the Economist and Financial Times sort of panicking that the, the Tory membership have become these paranoid conspiracy theorists obsessed with the uh, WEF and so on. Um, and in a sense, those cranks were right. They got their, the cranks got their candidates. They got their libertarian, unqualified nutter. They got rid for for now of Rishi Sunak, uh, the lockdown Davos smoothie. Um, but how has this played out? Liz Truss has been the perfect excuse for, um, for for austerity measures, for bringing in Jeremy Hunt. Uh, uh, you know, Mr. Zero COVID himself, one of the most kind of cogent voices for um, uh, uh, extreme lockdowns during the pandemic. Uh, I very much agree with uh, the central point in Gabriel's paper that we should be aiming for zero infection um, and elimination of the disease, because that is basically the approach taken in countries which have a SARS strategy as opposed to a, a flu strategy. And those are the countries that have overwhelmingly been the most successful in, in tackling coronavirus. Um, and, uh, you know, I just, my sister uh, lives in Beijing and she flew back to Beijing in the middle of lockdown. And just to give you an, an idea of the contrast, uh, she was escorted from the airport in Beijing to her home by Ministry of Health officials. Uh, and then uh, put into her home for two weeks quarantine. The door was sealed, and uh, she had a police car sitting outside her house uh, periodically. Now, I'm not saying we go that far in this country, but I just think it's an indication of how serious they are in the countries that have had to deal with SARS about stopping at the root every possible source of infection. I'm not saying that <laughs> everybody should have a police car outside their house, but... That but, is the current Chancellor of the Exchequer. So for the for the listeners uh, who, are, who are not watching the video, uh, his face was absolutely gleeful for the possibility of that level of government control. I mean, he looked like he was uh, giving a, a speech in V for Vendetta. He was like, "This is for your oh good." I and it's it's really interesting. I just uh, I, I I have never seen and you could say every, anything about you want about Anthony Fauci or anybody else. This guy would he would monitor your piece if he if he had an opportunity. Like it was incredible stuff. I, I the, just the, the 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 face of of the Joker. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and this is what we have now. So, in other words, um, precisely by voting for Liz Truss, the libertarian, uh, anti-centrist, anti-EU, anti-WEF um, uh, figure, at least that's what the, the, the Tory membership thought that they were getting, they have instead provided this straw woman um, to allow 
um, people who before this would have had no legitimacy and had no popularity or, or, or standing with the public at all. Uh, Jeremy Hunt, his, his kind of clone, Rishi Sunak, if, if, if he is to be uh, uh, prime minister, possibly even tomorrow, we're recording on Sunday, uh, uh, the, the, the 23rd, um, uh, uh, versus Keir Starmer. Um, it, it, it's, it's, been, uh, it's been a coup, quite frankly. And, and I should just reiterate Thomas Farsi's point made on this show a couple of weeks ago that all of the coverage of that mini budget and the markets turning on Liz Truss has been focused on the tax cuts uh, as if, you know, markets and financiers are now you know, anti-neoliberal or, or or somehow progressive or, or don't want this kind of Thatcherism anymore. All the coverage, all the coverage has been focused on the idea that Liz Truss's mistake and Kwasi Kwarteng's mistake was to introduce those unfunded tax cuts. But as Thomas Farsi pointed out, the tax cuts amounted, the actual tax cuts themselves amounted to 10 billion. 60 billion was the price of the energy subsidy guaranteed for two years in this country. And if, if, if the tax cuts were unfunded, then so too was that energy subsidy uh, to stop people freezing to death in, in, in the winter, uh, uh, lest we lose track of what that's for. That has been slashed uh, as soon as Jeremy Hunt came in. That's been slashed to April, which is what Keir Starmer had been asking for. Um, so I, I, I'm just kind of at a loss, frankly, at this constant, like, frankly, propaganda idea that the problem was the tax cuts. The, the tax cuts are an obscenity, of course, but they are not why the markets shat themselves in the face of uh, of of that um, mini budget. So I, I frankly think that Thomas Farsi is quite right, that the objection was not to the tax cuts or to unfunded tax cuts, but to the idea or the experiment that a country that prints its own currency is able in an emergency to um, print money to stop people freezing to death. Um, so the, the whole, like, economic event has been completely propagandized and um, mystified and this absolute gift to these increasingly identical um, two parties uh, has uh, has has arrived in the shape of Liz Truss. I, I've got to say, um, and, and I know I'm ranting, but really uh, in this country, not a day has gone past without some like tangible loss of democracy since those first pictures of Boris Johnson um, having the, the party during lockdown came out. That was, as we covered uh, at length on this show, that was the Corbyn playbook, the, the anti-Corbyn playbook being applied to Boris Johnson. They only let Boris Johnson become prime minister. They only uh, conspired to get him that majority because they needed a, a right populist to get rid of the left populist. That was all to get rid of Corbyn. He would never have been allowed to be prime minister if it wasn't for Jeremy Corbyn. They had to get rid of him eventually. They got rid of him by basically the press deciding 
to get those photos out of the drawer as they could have done at any time or they could have just ignored them and forgot about them or they could have said oh it's a tough job he's entitled to relax a little bit everything that has happened since then the the deposition of uh, boris johnson as prime minister the replacement of him by the tiny tory party me uh, 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 leadership uh, uh, membership and then finally the um the deposition of liz truss at the command of uh, of, of, of Tory party donors. This is a very sinister place to be, and it's going to become yet more sinister when Keir Starmer is Prime Minister, a guy who, lest we forget, has been committed to absolutely strangulating the possibility that there can be any internal democracy in the Labour Party. Uh, uh, as we speak, blocking uh, perfectly legitimate left-wing candidates from running in um in in labor seats uh so I, I think that whatever way you look at it you've got a very kind of sinister situation as far as the future of freedom and the future of democracy in britain is concerned and when i see left-wing people demanding a general election i just think for what i, I think that we, we've got a chance here to you know watch those tulsi clips for god's sake now is the time to absolutely wash your hands of both and to and to say no there are people in this country there are people in these political systems who are not happy to be driven down this avenue of um of of completely unaccountable power by yeah i think i think that now is the time so if you're if you're on the left and you're in in, in the uk this is my advice and this is uh this may not be the best advice it may, it may be uh maybe foolhardy but i think this is the time to push the Labour Party as much as you can. Because I can say, as a Democrat who went through the let's get on the Biden train, mm -hmm. that if you that there is the, you do not get to change them after they're in office. It just simply doesn't happen. And you can you can lobby and you can go and you can throw tomato juice on whatever. Uh, but right now is the time to get your commitments. Because now is when you have power. You can say, I'll either show up or I won't show up. I'll organize or I won't organize. I will tell my parents to not vote. I'll tell my friends not to vote. You know, that's the time. And your leverage is now because it's very clear that the Tory party is a mess. Everybody sees it. They can, this is, you know, we're going to have a third prime minister in a year. That's not typical. You know, that's not typical. Uh, the queen died this year. Maybe Liz Trust did it. Who knows? <laughs> I'm just joking, but but you know what I'm saying? Like you're seeing a lot of transitions this year. So when there's transition, there's opportunity. And if you're not thinking strategically about how do you push your local member to, to you know, get in Keir Starmer's ear, that's the only thing you can do. I mean, there's lots of things you could do, but that's one thing you can't do because they're thinking general election and that's going to be very important. Scorpio rising. Um. Yeah, well, I, I, I couldn't agree more with um, the, the point that there is no pushing left after they're in office. Uh, and that's why we're announcing the popular show Stay in Bed campaign <laughs> to assure the Labour Party that you'll be staying in bed on Election Day. Uh, and what you know it, it, it totally depends on your constituency the state of your constituency labor party how much leverage you think you have at the moment some people uh, uh, think they do have leverage and that is great and that is what you should be doing a, a slightly more pessimistic view is that 
if you do this strategy of complete withdrawal and the threat of complete withdrawal, then even if it doesn't make a difference, even if you get nothing out of Keir Starmer, or even if he says he's going to do something and then doesn't do it, which is what he generally does, um, the, and even if there is a, a huge 1997-style majority landing in um, uh, deep state agent Keir Starmer's lap, then at the very least, the left won't be associated with it in the way that it is in America. We should look on the American left as a total tragedy, as the Bernie movement completely laundered into the Biden project. And, you know, the squad can stamp and, and, and rave or they like Bernie, you know, former kind of Bernie media types can complain or they like. There's no getting over the fact that the assurances weren't demanded before. The vote wasn't forced. Nothing was <laughs> nothing was done. And now, as far as your ordinary American is concerned, uh, AOC is just a kind of you know wacky younger sister of the of 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 the of the mainstream party. No one thinks there's any difference between uh, the radical left and the Democratic Party itself. And and. <laughs> The, the UK left such as it is, this is real last chance stuff to make it totally clear that we are not them. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, that's, you know, and one of the things I would say is that act locally how you can show up at your local party meetings if you can, you know, uh, talk to your neighbors like that. That's always the advice that I give to people. Uh, but I, I think just just raising, you know, the idea that hey, we could get a labor government, um, just like we could get Democrats in the states, but we need to understand that that is not an end to itself. You know, it's what they do when they're in power, and that matters. Uh, and people need to be a little more agnostic about how that works and what's happening, uh, because otherwise, you're you're not going to get anything you want, because. If it's it's all if all it's about floppy hair man bad or or you know uh, or uh, you know orange men bad you're it's it's always going to be about you know sort of reaction and reactionary politics never end up good for the left that's a fact. Don't be cringe, guys. Stay <laughs> popular, um, and uh, yeah. Well, we, we, we love the patrons. Uh, tell your friends, patreon.com forward slash the popular pod. Uh, we could do a little do with a little algorithmic shot in the arm over at the Popularity Media YouTube channel, where if you're listening to this, you'll also be able to see uh, uh, clips from what we've been discussing. Uh, please share the content, spread the word. We're trying to have a movement here. Stay popular.